the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to Friday, the final show of the week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart and mind, we'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. Here is the way you can contact us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local area. Here in San Antonio, you can call 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions that way. If you're driving in your car, you can use the free KSLR mobile app. Use the hands-free feature. Just push call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer on this Friday afternoon. Lots going on here for us this weekend. Um, Tonight, of course, I'll be teaching the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Sunday, we are in Luke chapter 4. But Sunday afternoon, and this is always an exciting time for us, uh, is our annual baptism. It's uh, We do baptisms throughout the year, but, but this is a big one where we go out to the river and have a lot of food and people invite their family and friends. And uh, it's always a really, really neat time. Uh, and we are going to be going out there following third service on Sunday. Uh, we hope to get started eating around 3.30 uh, when we can get out there. Uh, and uh, then we'll have a great time um, letting people publicly the care of their faith in Jesus Christ. If you in the listening audience have not been baptized of your own free will, by that I mean as an adult, if you're a born-again Christian and you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. The food will be free. The people will be great. And uh, I just ask you to come and introduce yourself to me so we could ask you a couple of questions. And, and then we, we'd love to include you in the baptism as well. Uh, it really is a, a neat Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're a little earlier this year because of some things that might be going on later. Uh, but the weather is supposed to be great. The water uh, level in the river, we're told, has risen. So everything ought to be really, really great. If you are interested, you can get directions to the place. It's in the Spring Branch area uh, by going to our website, calvarysa.com, and you can get to directions that will get you right there on time. Okay, before we go, one more time for phone numbers, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one is from Rich. Uh, He says, if someone has a desire to study God's Word, and understand it better, what practical tools would you recommend in order to help them understand context, uh, whom a particular book was written to, the purpose of the book, etc., those kind of things? Rich, I'm always a little bit reluctant to to recommend um, tools. Uh, I'm going to do it, but first, please understand my heart here. 
Uh, before we get really digging into tools and commentaries and things like that, I think the most important thing we can do is just touch the pages, keep turning the pages, and by that I mean just read it. We have to get a little bit familiar with the Word. Let the, the Holy Spirit develop some questions in your heart and let Him help you begin this process of discovering things. Now, in terms of context, there's nothing more important when we're studying God's Word than understanding the things that you just spoke about, uh, who the writer was writing to, what the purpose of the book was, and and then understanding all of the promises it contains uh, in context. And the way we do that is simply to read the books. Now, I'll use the New Testament epistles as an example. Uh, those are letters written that were circulated. When somebody writes us a letter, we wouldn't read it just a verse at a time or a paragraph at a time or even a chapter at a time. There were no chapter and verse divisions. We'd read it. And I think the first thing you have to understand is that by reading and rereading, and I'm a big, big, big believer in reading it many, many times. Repetition really helps. Um, once you've read it four, five, six, ten times, and the epistles especially aren't so long that you can't do that, once you've read those letters, um, it's easier, easier, let me say, to begin navigating through them. Now, once you have done that, and you really want to dig in a little bit deeper, then obviously commentaries, we need good commentaries, but commentaries matter. There are study tools uh, like the Treasury of Scripture scripture Knowledge, uh, which is indispensable. And by the way, most of the, the time that is included on any of your Bible programs. There are other um, uh, tools, um, uh, topical dictionaries, which will help. Um, um, those kinds of things matter a great deal. One of my favorites is um, the the hardback copy. This is also on some of your Bible study programs, uh, but it's Robertson's word Robertson's word pictures in the New Testament. That is an invaluable tool to digging into the language. You don't have to speak Greek or or be a Greek scholar because people like A.T. Robertson have gone before you, and, and, and they it's just a really, really valuable tool. So all of those, uh, those things, the topical Bible study helps. Um, I also think, Rich, that we need to learn to uh, study inductively. And by that I mean we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Uh, I think for me personally, that was the most um, useful thing that I ever learned, um, simply using the Bible to interpret the Bible. Um, inductive Bible study is the art of observation. That's just reading it and noticing what's there. Um, interpretation, what does it mean? Break it into small little segments and, okay, when it says this in this verse, what does that mean? What's the first thing that... Uh, uh, pops into your mind as you're reading something. Um, and then the last thing is application. How can I use this when I go home? Those are the tools that will really, really help you understand it better. And although you said it, Rich, I want to say it one more time. Context, context, context is really that important. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a call that just came to the studio anonymously. Does God ever change his mind? The story where God commands Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and later God stops Abraham. Did God change his mind? Anonymous, no, God doesn't change his mind because God knows everything. This was a test for Abraham. This was a test, and God knew exactly what Abraham was going to do, and it was never God's intention to have Abraham murder his son. This was just a test. Now, here's what was sort of going on in the background. Abraham, you remember, waited for 25 years from originally receiving the promise of a son. His wife uh, was unable to bear a child. They were getting older and older. Uh, Abraham was 100, and and um, uh, Sarah was 90 when um, Isaac was born. And uh, when we, we find uh, that kind of a situation... Uh, there's something more going on in the background. God gave them this marvelous gift. Well, as time passed, and Abraham at this point was probably 115 to 120 years old. That means Isaac was not a child 
when Genesis 22 occurred. Um, but Abraham became a little too attached to Isaac, more so, in fact, than he was to the one who gave the gift, God. And he just sort of lost his focus, lost his perspective. And God is basically saying, um, choose who's more important to you. I gave the gift. Am I more important? Or is Isaac more important? That's a great lesson for all of us because sometimes God, we want something so badly when God gives it. I've seen women have babies that they prayed for forever and then sort of drop out of church because they're spending all the time with the babies. I've seen men and women both get jobs that they prayed for a long time. Then when they get the job, then they sort of put all of their energy into the job and, and sort of forgot about Jesus who gave them the job. Well, that was the nature of Abraham's test. So God didn't change his mind. He always knew he was going to stop Abraham before the knife plunged in. But Abraham had a test. Who's more important? Who do you value? Who do you love? And at the end, Abraham says, now I know that you fear God, though God knew that all along. But at this point, here's what's important, Anonymous. Abraham knew he feared God more. Abraham made the right choice. So I hope that helps. Thanks very, very much. Let's go to Universal City and talk to John online, too. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I have a, a question for you. Um, I wonder if you can help me to understand Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. I'm not sure I completely understand uh, what the writer intends there. He said Hebrews 6. This is the one, John, that I get a whole bunch of questions on because if you read it um, without understanding the, the, the context of the book, if you if you read it without understanding, for instance, Paul's other epistles, and um, I think most people on the radio know I believe that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Right. Um, they, they read this verse and say, wow, we can lose our salvation and we have no security. It is impossible well, for those for, who have for once... What it's worth, I, I was sure it didn't mean that, but that's the problem. Uh-huh. Is I don't know what it does mean. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I can explain that, John. Let me read the passage to the audience, and then we'll get there. Just three verses. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, at just a, a glance reading, it would appear that if any of us as Christians ever mess up, we're toast. There's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Uh, if you go down to verse 9, John, in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Now, here's the situation that's going on in this group of people that Paul is addressing. Uh, These are Jewish converts to Christianity. We read in this book, in the body of the book, that they earlier accepted the confiscation of their property with joy. In other words, it wasn't that they wanted their stuff to be taken, but for Jesus it was worth it. They endured many, many struggles, and now as time passes and as uh, the, the, the persecution increases, some of those Jews are giving up. And the um, uh, only place that a Jew could go would be back to Judaism. And Paul is basically saying, look, what are you going to do for sins if you go back to a Jewish sacrificial system that you know has no value? By the way, this is one of the reasons that we're pretty sure that this book was written before 70 AD uh, because there would have been a, a temple and sacrifices still being offered at this point. And Paul is simply saying to these converts to Christianity, basically, it's time to prove who you are. You accepted Christ. You stood in fierce battles before. Why are you giving up now? 
Where else are you going to go? And that's what 4 through 6 really means. And I love verse 9 in there because he encourages him by saying, Look, I've watched your walk. I know who you are. I'm confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. The truth of the matter is, John, that if those who went back into the the system of Judaism uh, for for the forgiveness of sins or for the covering over of sins, uh, they would have been lost. Paul is basically saying those are the people that have nowhere else to go. Those are the people who have no other way to be brought back to repentance. Um, Jesus is a sacrifice once and for all for sin. And if you leave him, there's no place else to go. Does that help? That sure does. Thank you very much. Okay, John. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to. Um, oh, Tanya is off the air now. Tanya, you can call back now. Thanks. I'm sorry that we couldn't get to you any more quickly than that. Here is a question from Nacho. It is more a comment than a question. He says, I just want to share how incredible God is in his timing. My brothers and Lord and I were talking about historical figures and Alexander the Great came into our conversation and how he so quickly changed the the geopolitical landscape of the known world. What caught us in awe was the fact that God used this young man, giving him the ability to not only radically change the governments of the world, but to introduce a language that would unify it as well. When man wanted to control the world, God changed their linguistic landscape by multiplying their languages. Of course, that was in at the Tower of Babel. But when God wanted to save the world, he brought it back under one language, uh, Koine Greek, in this case, so that the world would know how much he loves us. It gave us pause to see how God's timing and to see how great he is, even in the finite details of our lives. Nacho, I'm a history nut. I could spend the rest of our program talking about Alexander the Great. Don't worry for the rest of you. I won't. But uh, Alexander the Great is just a, a, a wonderful example of God using those who didn't believe in him to accomplish God's will. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, that's you and me. And in this case, millennia ago, he used this man, Alexander the Great, to unify the world in a language. Now, Alexander the Great is such a great story. He he, he had this insatiable ego from a very, very young age. He wanted to conquer the world. It's like me when I found out that a a, a U.S. citizen could be a president at the age of 35. I announced probably when I was 10 years old to my mom and dad, I'm going to be president when I'm 35. Well, Alexander really wanted to be the conqueror of the world. And he had the intellect to do so. This young man, he died at 32 years of age in a drunken stupor. It tells you how little value intellect has when that intellect doesn't help you find God. But Alexander the Great came into power. One of the things, one of the keys to to his military success was this brilliant young man invented a sandal with a cleat on it that enabled his armies to move at twice the speed of any other army before him. You know, opposing armies would send out scouts to find out where Alexander was. They would come back and report he's 10 days away. Well, Alexander would arrive in five days and catch them off guard and completely overwhelm them. He was a ruthless young man. Um, There was nothing that was going to stop him in his quest for dominance of the world. Uh, But as I said, he was also a brilliant young man. And one of the things he did as a young man was decide that, well, if I'm going to conquer the world, then I've got to be able to communicate with the world. And common Koine Greek is the, the language that he invented. It also happens to be the language that God chose to write our New Testament in. The most expressive and, if you will, living language um, still on the face of the earth today. So I, I too, with you, Nacho, uh, stand in awe of the fact that God will use anyone and everyone to accomplish his purposes. And and he is always at work in the little tiny details and the great big details of our lives. So Alexander the Great is a great, great subject of study. Thank you for the comment. It's always good to remember the goodness of God. 
Here is a question from Paul. He says, once saved, always saved. Is that correct doctrine? Um, Paul, it is, but uh, there, there needs to be some qualifiers here. God wants us to be secure in our salvation. Jesus said, if you abide in me or remain in me, I will abide or remain in you. There's no one who's abiding in Christ who has any doubts about their salvation. The, the, the idea that a, a, a faith that is begun by God, who promises to finish that, he who begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Another epistle, he says, he is the author and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. And somehow we in the West, we've got this idea that, well, God started it, but I've got to keep it going. And then when we blow it, we feel like, well, maybe I lost it. We look at other Christians who have fallen away, and we think perhaps that, that, that they've walked away from God. They've, they've forfeited their salvation. Nothing, Paul, could be farther from the truth. Here's the caveat that you have to understand. If you were ever saved, you will always be saved. Now, there's a lot of people... I think this is the problem that we have with this doctrine. We see a lot of people that get baptized, they're all answer an altar call, um, walk forward, you know, and big tears. Uh, they walk with Jesus for a little bit of time, or they try him out, and then they fall away. We say, well, you know, he lost his salvation. He never had it. We need only to read the parable of the sower, and Jesus talks about the seed that believers are the scatter. Uh, hits four basic types of soil, and only one of those four types of soil produces fruit and long-lasting fruit. So Jesus said that he wants us to be secure in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that the Spirit is given to us as a deposit, literally a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, if I guarantee that you're saved, that doesn't mean anything because I don't know you. But if that guarantee comes from God, that guarantee comes from Him who cannot lie, who holds us in His hands. Jesus said the Father has us in His hands. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I have you in my hands. No one can snatch you away. Then we're saved. Now, to understand that, we also have to deal with Jesus saying that many on the day of judgment will say to him, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. There's going to be a lot of people who are faithful church attenders who really don't know Jesus at all. In our church, in every church, I personally believe there's as many who aren't saved as who are. Doesn't mean they lost their salvation, it just means that maybe they had an emotional experience with God, but they've never really lived for Him. I've said this on this program many, many times. If you meet my Jesus, He changes you. If you claim to have met Him and are no different, then you have no reason to believe you're saved. Going to church doesn't save you, coming to Calvary Chapel doesn't save you, listening to this program doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't save you. We're saved by a person. A person who desires only a relationship with us. And if we come and we introduce ourselves to that person, but really don't have anything to do with him beyond that, then what makes us think that we really met him? We were introduced in a question that John asked a few moments ago. John, and Paul in Hebrews writes it, that um, for those who have tasted the heavenly gift... They haven't eaten it, but they've tasted it. If they fall away, where are they going to go apart from Jesus? There's no other source of forgiveness. And I think a lot of us in the Christian church, Paul, I think what we have is a situation where we treat Jesus like an eternal life insurance policy. We get up, we acknowledge who he is, but we never really surrender our lives to him. And there's only one way to meet Jesus, and that's to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It is, Paul writes to the church at Rome, after everything he's done, the only reasonable thing that we can do. It's our genuine act of worship. We belong to him. I had a caller in the week from a lady who asked about being grumpy and 
crotchety and saying things that she's sorry for. As Christians, we don't have the right to do that. We have the free will to do it, but we don't have the right. We don't have the right to use foul language. We don't have the right to get drunk. We don't have the right to take God's name in vain. We don't have the right to mess with people's lives. As believers, as believers, Paul, we have no rights. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. That means that our only responsibility is to report to Jesus every day. What about me and what about now? And the truly born-again believer will do that. The man or the woman who just comes to church and then doesn't give Jesus hardly a thought the rest of the week. I always want to ask, what makes you think you really know him and are known by him? Which apparently is the key. So, Paul, I hope that answers your question. God wants you to be eternally secure. There's just a whole bunch of people who think they can come to God on their terms rather than his. And those are the men and women who always are worried about losing their salvation because they never feel saved. One other thought, if you're living in willful sin, God doesn't want you to feel safe and secure in that sin. And the Bible is written specifically to convict us of that sin. Those who really belong to him will be convicted and repent. We have 30 minutes left in the week. You're listening to the word to stand on for life. 340-9585 for your live calls or area code 210 I'm sorry, 877. Never mind. You've got the numbers. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. I know the number our announcer just told you, but I was running out of time and I just lost my train of thought completely. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. KSLR 6305757. Here is a question from our mobile app that came in from Caleb. Why did God deal in such a seemingly harsh way with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? And he says, thanks. Caleb, let me rephrase the question and then I'm going to answer your question and, and I hope um, um, I, I understand the intent. I would ask, why did Ananias and Sapphira deal so dishonestly and, if you will, harshly with God after God saved them? And I personally believe that Ananias and Sapphira were saved. I don't think they were phonies. I just think there was a lot of flesh. Here's the real issue, Caleb, with Ananias and Sapphira. This was the enemy's most insidious attack on a church. Now, remember, at this point, the church is brand new. It is holy. God is doing a marvelous outpouring of His Spirit. 3,000 people get saved immediately on the first day. Another 5,000 just right after that. Uh, People are giving their life to Jesus. There is a Christian community that's developing um, that's pure and holy. They want all of the fullness that God has for him. And the devil plants right in the middle of the church this couple. The circumstances were this. Barnabas, the son of consolation and encourager, he comes in and lays at the feet of the apostles the proceeds from some land that he was selling. Remember, in this church culture, brand new church, which was entirely Jewish, many of those Jews, in fact, most of those Jews, would be disowned by their families. Jewish families would actually hold funerals for their relatives, their children, their husbands or wives. They'd hold funerals for those who left the faith and converted to Christianity. They were, they were, they were no longer alive to them. You're dead to me, they would say. And so there were people that didn't have anything at all. 
All they had was a Christian community, and this godly community took care of one another. They loved one another. They loved even the unsaved. But they rallied around. They took care of one another. That's why Barnabas brought in the proceeds and said, use this to the, to the apostles. You use this as the Lord leads. Well, uh, imagine the response, especially from those who are really in bad shape. They would be so grateful. And Barnabas would be like king for a day. Look what Barnabas has done. Barnabas, you're so generous. I can imagine Barnabas with a smile on his face, but at the same time saying, no, it's not me, it's the Lord. But Ananias and Sapphira, sitting off watching all of this, devised a plan. Make no mistake, this was intentional. I want people to talk about me the way they talk about Barnabas. I want people to think of me the way they think about Barnabas. So here's what we do. We've got a lot of money, and I think they were pretty well-to-do. So what we're going to do is we're going to sell some property. We're going to say we sold it for this much, and we're going to give them that, but really that's only half the amount that we're going to sell it for. And this was the enemy using those two people, a married couple, the enemy using them to introduce hypocrisy for the very first time into God's holy church. This was a statement judgment. Now, if I'm right and Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven, uh, this was a death uh, or a sin that leads to death. It wasn't a sin that leads to eternal death, but it was a sin that was so grievous, given the timing, that God declared that they needed to be punished by death. Now, they had a second chance to change their story and repent, but they didn't. You know, Caleb, the, the worst thing about this story is if they would have said, look, we sold our land and we used money that we can understand for $100,000 and we're going to give $50,000 of it to the apostles to help feed the poor, to help build this community. Everybody would have thought, well, that's so generous. Thank you so much. And they really would have been spoken of in the same terms as Barnabas was. But that's not what they did. They lied, Peter, when he confronts him. Why is it that you have, Satan has put this in your heart and you've lied to God, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. He says, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And this was just one of those statements that God makes one time and says, this is how I feel about hypocrisy and lying in my church. Now, the takeaway for you and for me, Caleb, is that we need to be honest with God. Not because he's going to strike us dead like he did Ananias and Sapphira, but because this is how the God we love feels about lying. This is how we hurt his heart when we lie and when we cheat and when we live in a way that is a contradiction to the words that come from our mouth. So I don't think it was harsh. I think it certainly isn't the way God deals with liars and hypocrites now inside the church. But it's still his statement that this is how I feel when my church is polluted by this kind of sin, by this kind of hypocrisy. He was making a statement. And again, if I'm right and they're saved, he took Ananias and Sapphira to a reward that they didn't deserve any more than you or I deserve it. And when they stood before Jesus in judgment, that sin was wiped away. Now, if they were never really believers, of course, they went into the place of torment. But I personally don't think that's the case. We'll wait to heaven to find out. So, Caleb, I hope that answers your question. One of the things that we always need to be on guard against when we see something that sounds harsh to us, we have to think about the character of God. Is he ever harsh? Is he ever unfair? Is he ever unkind? The answer is no. So we look for the reasons behind it. Here is, we've got a caller on the line, Jimmy from San Antonio. Jimmy, good to hear from you again. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Thank you sir. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, I want to know what the Bible says about this. We got a letter from the HOA yesterday, nitpicking on little things in our house. And we, we've been living in the neighborhood for 22 years, never had a problem with them. And then they want us to, to repaint the house and 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 uh, the window seals and 
do little things. And they wanted to do it in 10 days. And I left them a message and said, it's not going to be done in 10 days. But I, the way I left it, I said, <clears throat> you know, we're going to put it in prayer. You know, you broke our hearts because, you know, we, we've been, you know, living in that house since in 1996. And, and we know that God blessed us with that house. And, you know, it's in the process. We know that little things need to be done, but we can't do it right now. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the Bible says about that. I don't. I just think that they're just trying to make money from us or something like that. If we don't do it in ten days, they're going to find. They said they, they might. They're going to find us. Yeah, and and what they'll do, Jimmy, is they'll put a lien on the home. At least they they have the legal authority to do that. Uh, I'm going to ask you to listen on the on the off the air, just because this is. I really need to think carefully about this and make make my thoughts clear. Uh, homeowners associations are one of those things that uh, I can tell Paul is smiling at home or laughing now. They drive me crazy. Now we don't live in an HOA, so thank the Lord for that. But when they can tell you what to do with your property, I just don't get it. Now, having said that, it's our responsibility as Christians to be lights in the neighborhood. And as much as it might grate you, as much as it might seem unfair to you, um, the the proper response is to do what they ask you to do uh, as quickly and as timely a manner as you possibly can. If for financial reasons you can't yet afford to, to repaint, that's not cheap. If for financial reasons you can't afford to do it, then you go to your uh, homeowners association president and submit a request uh, for for an extension until you can afford to explain the reasons. But here's the thing. As much as it is difficult and as unfair as these things may seem, um, we want to be good witnesses. Let me give you a parallel situation here where our church is. Uh, um, we have businesses. You know, we're in a strip center, and there are businesses around us. And we got people come to church, and they want to park as close to the church as they possibly can. On Sunday, we take up the whole parking place here, uh, and, and it's a big one. But we take up the whole thing, especially between services. It's just crazy here. Um, but but we ask our people not to park in the places that are in front of businesses that are going to be open. And we get people from the other businesses that come on from time to time. So, was, you know, your people are taking up our parking places. We've actually paid, Jimmy, for signs to say, please do not park here. Um, um, no Calvary Chapel parking, those kinds of things. Because we want to be a good neighbor. We want other people to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that means as homeowners, we need to be responsible to keep up the maintenance on our homes. Uh, we need to, to, to just not let others find fault. And even when we feel like they're being unfair, it's just one of those sacrifices we make, not for the HOA, but it's the sacrifice that we make for Jesus. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. We've got Tanya back online, too. Tanya, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me Okay. I can hear you perfect. Great. Okay. Um, so I have been um, walking alongside a, a, a new believer, relative new believer, and so she sent me this message um, in, last night in the middle of the night, and, and she has, uh, you know, really good questions, and I don't always have the correct answer. So I wanted to ask you a question about, um, it's just, I'm just going to read it to you. I'm laying in bed, and a question popped into my mind. We know that because Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, their sin enters into the world. Many scholars believe that angels were created on day four, which I told her that's not true because Job 38 tells us that the angels were witness of creation. So I told, I corrected her there. Assuming that includes Lucifer. Okay, so let me go back. Many scholars believe that angels were created on day four. Assuming that includes Lucifer, how was Lucifer created to be evil in a serpent if evil hadn't hadn't been introduced until after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Hope I worded the question to make sense. So that was her yeah. question. But is, is, can you give me some more information about when the angels, because I, I get what she's asking. She's asking yes. why I, if, you know, so I'll leave it to you. And then um, one quick uh, question about a graven images. Pastor Ron, I had another young believer uh, tell me about, you know, about the light and candle. I said, no, we, we don't do any of that. She said, well, what about the cross? 
she said, you know, I said, well, it's, it's not, it's just a reminder. It's not anything hocus pocus or a lucky charm, nothing like that. So if you could expound on graven images as well, I would really appreciate it. I can do that, Tanya. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Pastor Ron. You know, I love you guys. Uh-huh. Thank you. You know, for all of you in the audience, if you want to listen to tonight's Bible study, you want to talk about graven images, I'm going to talk about one and actually show a picture of one on on our video screens. Um, uh, it's Acts chapter 19, uh, the, the, the little statues that were made of, of Diana or Artemis. Um, um, let me get that one first because it's easy. The cross uh, is simply a reminder of where the work of redemption occurred. Um, no church worships a cross. Um, we we know that Christians wear little crosses, but 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 we certainly don't worship them. We don't cross ourselves. We don't um, dip them in holy water. We we just this is just a reminder that that the cross and it's not the piece of wood. It's the man that was hung on that cross, who is foundational to everything that we believe. And if Jesus didn't die. And that empty cross, Tanya, is really important. As you know, the crucifix that Catholics wear, Jesus is still on the cross. He's not there. And so that, that cross is a reminder of victory over death. Death, where is thy sting? And uh, that's why the cross is an important reminder. There's nothing wrong with symbols. Um, it's when we begin to venerate or worship those symbols that we fall into trouble. The other question, and by the way, Tanya, that was a great Job reference, by the way. I don't know anybody else who would have picked out that Job reference. The angels were created. It doesn't matter what many scholars think. The Bible is pretty clear that the angels were created sometime in eternity past. Now, what we have to understand is that there's two separate types of beings. Adam and Eve were human beings. Angels are not human Created by God, for sure, just as Adam and Eve were created by the finger of God. The rest of us were created by the process that God created. Um, but, but as groups, whether angelic or human, who have been given free will by God, we make a choice who we're going to serve. And prior to Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. That choice was given in eternity past sometime, and we don't know when for sure. That choice was given in eternity past to the angels. We know that two-thirds of them kept their first estate. In other words, they made the right choice. One-third of them fell with Satan. Now, the, the question that nobody knows the answer to, I have a very strong opinion on this, but the question nobody knows the answer to is, well, when did that happen? I personally think that while the angels were created with free will, the only difference between angels and, 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 and humans uh, in terms of their free will choice is that when the angels made a choice, it was a once-forever choice. They, they don't get a second chance. The fallen demons who lived in the presence of God don't get a second chance to repent and get a do-over. We humans get lots of do-overs. Why too much is given, much is required, Jesus said. The angels were in the presence of God. They saw him in all of his glory. For them to fall was a much more dire sin than humans who haven't seen God. Now, I personally think that the fall of Satan, Lucifer, occurred after the sixth day of creation. Again, they were created long before. They were witnesses of creation. But I think in that witness is when they saw what God did by making man. Ephesians 2.10 says that, that humans are his workmanship, his poema is the Greek word. Our English word poem comes from it. We're his expression of imagination. We're a work of art, the masterpiece of God. And I personally think that Lucifer, who was God's most beautiful, brightest creation, I think he got jealous. I think he got jealous. And that's when 
he fell. He wanted to be God. I will cast my throne above the Most High, we're told in Isaiah. He didn't want to worship God even as the chief worshiper. And if you read the King James Version, Ezekiel 28 seems to indicate that he was sort of what we would call the worship leader of heaven. He wanted to be worshipped. And the process, he was able to persuade others. I think that was the source of the fall. Again, there's no way of proving that. There's no way of knowing it. It's just sort of a conclusion that I've come to after study. But the creation of the angels happened a long time before. How much longer? We don't know. We don't know how many years passed from the sixth day where God created Adam and Eve until chapter 3 in Genesis when the fall occurred. We don't know how long God walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve, where they saw him in all his glory, but they could see him because they, too, were in that glory. One day after the fall, of course, God said, Adam, where art thou, Adam? And he said, we're here. And Why are you hiding from me? Because we're naked and we're ashamed. They would never have known their nakedness surrounded by the glory of God and all of a sudden sin into the world so um, I don't know I would I would take issue Tanya with her statement that many scholars believe um, uh, I've actually never heard a single scholar identify the fourth day as a day that angels were created so uh, I, I just don't believe that's that's the case what I do know is that like humans, we all have a choice, and some of the angels made a terrible choice, just like we humans make terrible, terrible choices. So, Tanya, I hope that answers your question, and I really do appreciate you calling back. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions with the time we've got left. Here is a question from Anthony. He says, Pastor Ron, what do you think about using your cell phone for Bible in church? Anthony, I'm not a fan. Um, however, I understand the time that we're living in. Uh, I ta- actually take my iPad when I'm traveling because my, my Bible is so big because it has to be super huge letters for me to be able to see it. Um, uh, my Bible is so big, carrying it around, packing it, taking it on airplanes hard. So I use my iPad uh, in church. I've got it set to where I can use really big letters. Um, but... Um, um, the truth is we're not going to convince people not to use their cell phones um, for a Bible when they're in church. Our announcer says, please turn down the volume. Uh, Cell phones make noise. Bible apps make noise. Uh, I'd just rather them have the Bible on a cell phone than not having it at all. Now, here's the question that always comes to mind. If you're reading your Bible, I'm preaching a message at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio what would you do if you got that little notification the text message came? Would you take a text? Would you interrupt your Bible study to flip over to the text? If the answer to that question is yes, then you've got some problems that you need to deal with. It's an amazing culture we live in. We can't be without our Bible or without our cell phones and without text messages for an hour or an hour and 20 minutes. And yet that's the world that we live in. I see people and I can see the movement and I'll see people texting one another from one in the sanctuary to the other in church. That's just not something we should do. Those are the people that need to leave their cell phones at home or in the car and bring their Bibles to church. So uh, I don't like it, but it is a fact of life. And I think it's something that we're not going to change. So instead of complaining about it, uh, it's just better to remind people to be polite, turn the sound down. Um, there are people who actually come to church because they want to hear the Word of God. Randy says, can you please explain what it means to be made in the image of God? Uh, Randy, two things. It doesn't mean we look like him. Two things. It means that we have the capacity of choice, the freedom of choice. Just as God chose us, we can choose him. Or we can choose to reject him. That's the choice that we've been given. Uh, The second thing it means, and I think this is the more important of the two, it means that once we are born, we are eternal. God is eternal. God is forever. Once we inhabit humanity, uh, we come out of our mother's womb. Actually, once we're formed in our mother's womb, we're going to live somewhere forever. 
And again, with the capacity of choice, we have to make the choice where that's going to be. We're going to live with God, that we call that heaven, or we're going to live separated from God, we call that hell. But that's what it means to be made in the image of God. That is the only thing it means. It doesn't mean that, well, since God is good, that we're instinctively good at heart. We know that's not true. The Bible says there's none good, not even one. There's no one righteous, no one who seeks God. So it can't mean that either. I get a lot of people say, well, you know, we're all God's children created in his image um, only in the capacity of choice and in the fact that we're going to live somewhere forever and ever. Here's a question. I think we got a little under two minutes, so I can do one more. Edward wants to know, why does God tell us to ask him for things when he doesn't usually answer? Edward, um, God tells us to ask him for things. In fact, we can ask him for anything. But we have to ask with thanksgiving. You know, we're not being very grateful if we expect God to give us something. Well, I want a new car. I want a new wife. I want a new this or a new that. That's not the kind of request that even constitute prayer. The other thing, Edward, is is he doesn't answer when we're asking for stuff that's not consistent with his will. And whenever I get a question like this, it's almost like we treat him like he owes us things. And he owes us nothing. He's already given us everything. So Edward Paul says, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. When you can start appreciating what God has already given you, then you're going to start getting some prayers answered. But before even that happens, those prayers are going to change. You're going to stop asking for stuff. And you're going to start asking for more of Him. That's the will of God. He wants to answer your prayers, Edward. He delights to answer them. But the only way that He can is in those prayers are born out of gratitude and the prayers in His will. Hey, appreciate calls today and the questions. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Quick reminder, we have a baptism. You can go to calvarysa.com, get directions. We'd love to meet you if you'd like to join us. Eat a lot of food, meet a lot of nice people, and tell people you love Jesus. I'll see you on Monday. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.